Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. On my 10th birthday, Dervla Murphy wrote, a bicycle and an atlas coincided as birthday presents, and a few days later, I decided to cycle to India. 21 years later, in January 1963, she did just that, and those words became the first sentence of her first book, Full Tilt, Ireland to India on a Bicycle. When I chose that book from the library shelf in Kilkenny 15 years or so later, I couldn't put it down. I read it there in the library, then on a bench by the river, then on the steps of the bank, so that by the time I got home I had it half finished. Dervila Murphy's storytelling transported me across Europe, through Turkey, into Iran, and most magically into Afghanistan, then on to Pakistan and India. I didn't know then that I would go on to travel and report from all those countries, but from there on I was addicted to travel and travel literature, and Dervila in particular. I read Freya Stark, Devar Jan Morris, all the great women explorers and writers of the 20th century. But Dervla was from Lismore. She was our travel writer. When I came across a later edition of the book, which had become Dunkirk to Delhi by bicycle, presumably to appeal to the British market, I was extremely annoyed that Ireland had been written off the cover. I loved her list of kit at the back of the book, spare woolen underwear and a 1.25 automatic pistol which she had to use when attacked by wolves cycling through the Balkans in the coldest European winter in 80 years. Her account of crossing the Babasar Pass in Pakistan, carrying Raz, her trusty bicycle, and a key character in her first book, was enthralling, terrifying, and a wonderful piece of writing. On a rainy Sunday afternoon, or late at night under the covers, there was nothing better than accompanying Dervila on a shoestring to Coorg, muddling through in Madagascar, or crossing Ethiopia with a mule. With Dervila, you were immersed. She had an evident great gift for living in the moment and conveying joy and delight in her surroundings and those she met. She had the most extraordinary resilience, suffering numerous illnesses and injuries and staying in the most god-awful accommodation you could imagine. Dervila didn't just go off the beaten track, she went where there were no tracks whatsoever. When I began travelling alone, Dervla often came along as a passenger inside my head. On my first visit to China, I was cycling among rice paddies when I saw a sign for a cave tour. I was barely in the door of the building when a man came and locked the door behind me. I asked nervously, where were the others? No others. My heart was thumping as we descended a series of ladders. We climbed onto a tiny wooden raft and floated down an underground river. I could be chopped up into little pieces, I thought, and no one would ever know. And then Dervla intervened. 99% of the people in the world are good, Margaret. Pull yourself together. And I did. What would Dervla do got me through many a sticky situation. Nothing I did could ever come close to what this extraordinary woman achieved. But she inspired me and many others to push ourselves way beyond our comfort zone. In 2001, I found myself heading to Afghanistan, covering a war. I re-read Dervla before leaving, and like her, I fell in love with Afghanistan. Sleeping on floors for weeks, sharing one latrine with a hundred soldiers of the Northern Alliance, and eating pulao with my hands, 
It was the first time I felt, if I ever met her, I could look her in the eye. But unlike Dervila, I was absolutely delighted to fall into a clean bed in the Hilton in Dubai at the end of it. In her later books, Dervila moved beyond a diary style of writing and her accounts of travelling in Northern Ireland, Gaza and Southern Africa during the AIDS crisis were classics of reportage, empathetic and insightful. She gave people a voice who otherwise would not have been heard over the louder shouts of politicians. As I grew older, I didn't always agree with Dervla. I thought she could be preachy at times, but I also thought she had earned that right by then, and she was always unflinchingly honest, including about her own shortcomings. I never did meet her, but I wrote to her once asking her to come along to the start of a Greenpeace cycle by an Irish duo from Dublin to Australia. She sent back a wonderful letter wishing them well, but explaining that she rarely went to things. Instead, her writing did the talking. She was a one-off, a true original. Like that first book title, she went full tilt at life, and we are the richer for it. Thank you, Dervla. Don't you have one doing the leaving? There is a question to put the heart crossways. Doing the leaving. The twist and turn of that phrase goes round me noggin. The eldest is doing his leaving. But it feels like I'm doing my leaving. Well, if I were anyway as near attentive to my leaving back in 1987 as I am to this year's leaving, I'd be away in a hack. It's not only the exam candidate who's doing the leaving. It's the whole family. We can tell you our son's exam timetable. The exact dates, times, duration of each exam, the arc of his exam schedule and how much time he has between each exam in order for him to fit in some more revision. Chance would be a fine thing. Meanwhile, our scholar is keen to tell me a points race is not the point of education. I'm fit to be tied. A 30-year career as a teacher and this little pup has had the nerve to dip in and out of me bookshelves. I'm telling yous now, don't be letting your kids read the likes of the pedagogy of the oppressed. It can all backfire when you're left gobsmacked by your 18-year-old and him telling you a points race is not the point of education. I cast me eyes to heaven and ask Our Lady who I know was also once a mother of another 18-year-old upstart, to give me patience. I know I'm not alone. Ask any parent of any leaving-searcher and they'll tell you. We're all relying on divine intervention for this one. It's not so much that we want our kids to get gold medals from the Department of Education for the most mind-blowing leaving certificate ever. Though that would be okay too. No, we and our extended families have been pleading to all things holy that we'll get through our kids' leaving cert without 
losing our minds. I might be pleading with the good lady to help me, but spare a thought for me Muslim mate Aisha. She asked the imman if she could do Ramadan for herself and her daughter, as she was worried about how fasting might affect her young one's concentration during this all-important year. The imman said no, and my Jewish neighbour is thinking of moving southside to be nearer the synagogue on account of the fact that only God can stop her from screaming blue murder at her reluctant leaving certer. Me mother-in-law is doing novenas. The sister and brother-in-law have gone on pilgrimage to Nock, and me old Buddhist paths are flying the Tibetan prayer flags. All with special intention prayers and the name of our leaving certer on their lips. Meanwhile, our scholar is as cool as a cucumber. Though he does have his moments, and so do we. The thing is, our son was diagnosed with dyslexia when he was seven. Like his ma, he learns differently. I didn't get diagnosed with dyslexia until I was 19 and away at university in Boston. However, I did not want our son to grow up thinking he was lesser. So I told him dyslexia was a superpower and he'd have to learn to be patient with the non-dyslexics. I've no one to blame but myself. Turns out my son has learned so much more and he has taught me a points race is not the point of education. So here we are on the run up to the leaving cert and I'm giving me usual free English grinds to the local and not so local leaving certers. Sometimes we get lost in some beautiful prose, poetry or plays. Sometimes we find ourselves or find each other there. We might even learn something to help us with English paper one and paper two. However, this year is different. This year we've got skin in the game. Indeed, flesh of our flesh. Our son and thousands of others will start their leaving and junior certificates on the Wednesday after the June bank holiday. Our son learns differently. Perhaps we all need to learn differently and remember a race for points is not the point of education. Good luck to all the leaving certers and junior certers and good luck to the families and all. Don't know much about history Don't know much biology Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be I joined the Ordnance Survey in Northern Ireland in 1966. It was an organisation that truly hadn't changed since 1824, when the British Parliament granted £300,000 for Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Colby to map the entire island at a scale of 6 inches to 1 mile. From a perfect 7.89 mile baseline on the shores of Loch Foyle, they were, by angles only, able to cover Ireland with a framework of triangles at a density close enough to be chained. When I started, 
They were in the middle of the re-triangulation, building pillars on the top of mountains and burying cement blocks in fields. After logging months in the office learning to draw with a ruled pen and a while training in Norma Park, I was assigned to the trig section, carrying gear to the remotest places. For 15 days on the trot, we carried telerometer, theodolite, lights, thermometers, barometers, car batteries and lunch bags from sea level to Maggie's Leap at the top of Sleeve Donard. As I look back, the amazing thing is that the only way we could communicate from one mountain to the other was by Morse code. Hence all the car batteries for the telerometer and for the light to flash the Morse code. When you see the perfusion on mobile phones now. Then I was a leveller. No, nothing to do with religion or finance. With a cold chisel I cut benchmarks, crow's feet and stone bridges and walls to be given a height above sea level. In 1972, I ran a line along the South Armagh border. It's amazing how accustomed we became to the troubles. On hearing gunfire further up the road, we'd stop for a while and then start again and move on. Old benchmarks cut by the sappers were incorporated in the new work. Outside Cross Midlane, I was looking for such a mark when a man came out and said to me, I was waiting for you. You're looking for the crow's foot, aren't you? We had to widen the entrance. Whereupon he took me round to the side of the house where he had public spiritedly built the big stone with a mark on it into the wall. And up in the morns above Kilfehan, I was cutting marks out on the mountain, drawing a little sketch of each so that a surveyor in a hundred years' time could find and use them. Dan White was a local shepherd. He too had his own hammer and chisel took to cutting marks more or less identical. Little did I realise that in a short time, with the advent of Satnow, Dan's marks will be just as relevant as mine. It's the field man's job to look at anything that may be of archaeological interest. In the corner of a field in Kefehan, I noticed a pile of stones that may have been a souterrain or a cairn, and in the house below it, I went over and spoke through the window to a woman making a griddle of bread. Do you know anything about the pile of stones? I asked. I do, she said. Every year on the night of the 7th of August, two teams of small dark men come up from under those stones. They play a game of football in the field and then go back down. She was a sonsy woman with flour up to her elbow and she told me this in such a matter-of-fact way, never deviating from making the bread. In 1980, I was working in Carrickfergus and climbed a wall and started measuring in a big garden. Then, thinking the owner might phone the police, stopped, went back, got the van and drove up the avenue to where a flight of granite steps led to the mansion's double doors. There I rang the bell, and to my alarm, two things happened. Well, a number of things happened. The door opened a little, and out of the courtyard at the side of the house tore two huge rock fighters. Instinctively I shouted, goodness me, or words to that effect, and burst through the door, slamming it behind me. As I did so, I inadvertently bumped into and jostled a portly gentleman in a tartan waistcoat and a red bow tie. He was very shocked, and so was I. I'm from the Ordnance Survey, I blurted, noting the place dripping with antique artefacts and beginning to understand my dancing partner's alarm at my sudden intrusion. 
In time, we both calmed down. I could easily have walked up the avenue and been torn to ribbons, I said. Oh, not to worry, he replied loftily. They're trained guard dogs and would simply have shoulder-charged you, knocked you down and held you until I came. Well, thank God for that. Many years ago, when I thought of myself as an aspiring novelist, I sat in a packed town hall in Dunleary, listening to advice and guidance from the great Maeve Binchy. She was, as ever, enlightening, entertaining and full of encouragement. At one point, she said it was the novelist's job to study human behaviour and to gather information from any source on offer. She then asked her hundreds of listeners what they would do if they picked up a telephone and suddenly realised they were on a cross line, listening to a private conversation. A polite lady in the front row said she would immediately apologise and put the receiver down. Absolutely right, said Maeve, and then added, but if you are a novelist, you place your hand over the mouthpiece in case they hear your breathing. Or, better still, stop breathing altogether and you listen. These conversations, she explained, are just tiny fragments of people's lives and it is up to us, as novelists, to fill in the full story as we imagine it. The same, she continued, is true of messages on postcards. Postcards, she explained, are just a snatch from someone's life. And as they are not sealed in envelopes, they are there for anyone to read. So we should read them. It was an inspiring, practical lecture, full of laughter. And in the years that followed, I tried to put her words and her attitude into practice. However, not having the gift, I never managed to write the novel. But I did develop a great parallel interest in buying and collecting both contemporary and vintage postcards. As my collection grew, I realised the truth in Maeve Binchy's words. Each card was indeed a glimpse into someone's life, perhaps a celebration of the present, or a hope for the future, or a comment on the past. And sometimes it would not only contain an unfinished story, but deliberately create a mysterious one. As in the intriguing card I once bought in a Belfast market that had been originally posted in London in 1906, addressed to a Miss E. M. Amys in Lowestoft, in Suffolk, England. The first peculiarity about this postcard was that, apart from Miss Amys' name and address, everything else was written in code. A code that looked like a jumbled series of meaningless numbers until I realised that each number referred to a consecutive letter of the alphabet. Using this decoder, the message then read, 
My dearest Ethel, thanks very much for all I received from you this morning. We'll write later. I'm so busy. With best love and many kisses from your ever-loving Bill. For me, this was a message with too many unanswered questions. So I decided to further investigate by writing to the address. Knowing that in the intervening century or more, the house could well have disappeared with this generation of inhabitants long forgotten. But after a few weeks, I received a reply. The house was still there. And although the present owners had records going back to 1900, there was never any mention anywhere of Ethel Amy's. However, they knew that their attic was once a servant's quarters, with the remnants of a bell system still visible, and they suggested that perhaps Miss Amy's was an unrecorded maid or servant. They also said that the records for 1906 showed that the owner of the house was then a high-ranking sea captain whose first name was William. They delicately omitted to give his full name. So was he Bill in the postcard? And if so, why would he be writing to a maid? And why in code? And why would he say, in code, that he was so busy and would write later? Or was there another unrecorded man called Bill on the domestic staff of the house, who maybe wrote in code as a lover's joke between him and Ethel? And if that were true, what was he thanking her for, having received it that morning? And romantically or not, how did the pair of them live out the rest of their lives? I never got any answers to these questions. But I have often wondered what the true story really was. And in the absence of that, I have sometimes idly thought that maybe, just maybe, I might try to write the novel behind the story. I've yet to begin it, but I am certain that Maeve would be delighted if I did. I was back at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast this week for the first time in two years and it felt really good. A production of Brian Friel's Translations. More relevant now than ever with language and identity and misunderstanding at its heart. The last thing I'd seen there was Good Vibrations, the riotous musical story of record shop owner Bon Viver and Belfast punk godfather Terry Hooley. And I remember such a buzz of anticipation on the opening night. The regular lyric audience was dotted with old punks in bleached hair and tartan and safety pins. And as the lights dimmed and a hush fell on the theatre, a lone voice cried out, Terry Hooley is up! And then said a word that rhymes with banker. And as the audience roared laughing, 
we realised that that lone voice from the darkness was actually Terry Hooley himself. Ever the rebel. And that's probably the most rebellious act I've ever seen from a theatre audience member. I saw the film Michael Collins in a half-empty cinema in Phoenix, Arizona in 1996. And as the credits rolled, an American guy, about three seats behind me, roared, Up the Rebels! And everybody else either giggled or looked at their shoes. But you know what? We need more active participation in the arts. So why not bring a few mouldy old tomatoes the next time you're heading to the theatre? Hand them out on your way into the opera. Or sell them at the food concession with the popcorn and the nachos. I think we should aspire to be more like the distinguished audience in the Théâtre Champs-Élysées in Paris on this day in 1913. They'd come in their ostrich feathers and tails to see the latest ballet by the sensational Serge Diaghilev with music by Igor Stravinsky, The Rite of Spring. Now, if you're not familiar with The Rite of Spring, it opens with a depiction of spring, but not tweedy birds and bursting buds and flowing streams. This is primal. Stravinsky described it as the scratching, gnawing, wiggling of birds and beasts with knock-kneed and long-braided lolitas jumping up and down. Dancers stomped awkwardly to dissonant chords and pulsating rhythms and I suppose it was the antithesis of the beautiful, elegant movements you might expect in ballet. And the Paris audience that night were having none of it. They started shouting, catcalling, whistling, leaving. One person in a box took the opportunity to challenge the person in the next box to a duel. Meanwhile, down in the cheap seats, they didn't wait for an appointment and they just attacked each other with their canes. Stuff was thrown at the stage. The poor house manager thought that turning the lights on and off to try and restore order might help. Somebody apparently called for a doctor, then two doctors, then a dentist. Uh, Police arrived and 40 people were arrested at a concert of classical music. At the Plough and the Stars riot in the Abbey some years later, 1926, W.B. Yeats, of course, famously got on stage and addressed the audience, telling them, you have disgraced yourselves. That night in Paris, 1913, Stravinsky got out of his seat, told the audience they could all go to hell and then politely excused himself. And nowadays, you could probably play the Rite of Spring on a harmonica, in a pair of wellies in the National Concert Hall. And bar a call or two to Joe Duffy, I don't think anybody would bat an eyelid. We wouldn't riot now at the Playboy of the Western World or throw a shoe at the Plough in the Stars. But what must it have been like to be caught up in those visceral responses of a century ago? Had I been there that night in Paris, I don't think I would have fought anybody. I probably would have stayed to the end, though just out of sheer nosiness. But I have my own way of registering a lack of enjoyment that is simpler and quieter and more subtle. Well, usually. I once went to a special screening of a film called The Life of David Gale about the death penalty in America. And at this Friday morning screening, there was just me and three reviewers all spaced out in the cinema. 
At the time, our kids were probably five, two and newborn. And I tell you that because a night's sleep was in short supply at our house. And somewhere along the way, I succumbed to the heat and the comfort and the peace and quiet of the cinema and nodded off. But there's a scene in the life of David Gale where Kate Winslet is frantically ringing through to the penitentiary to stop an execution taking place. And the warden on the other end of the phone is called John. So she rings in a panic, shouting down the phone, John! 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 At which point I instinctively awoke with a big snort and shouted, Right, right, I'm coming, I'm coming. And then as I came around, it slowly dawned on me what I'd done. And I had to sit in mortal embarrassment till the end of the film, in the movie house, in Belfast, with three professional film reviewers. As I did the walk of silent shame and we filtered out the door, I felt their judging eyes burn my soul. I met her at Clairvaux when I was about 11 years old. That was the name of her house, a pebble-dash bungalow at the eastern edge of the town of Lismore. Behind the house, the townland of Ballynelligan sloped down to the banks of the Blackwater, and beyond that the land rose again towards the foothills of the Down Mountains, leaving in its wake townlands with magical names like Munatarav, Munalawr and Munaman. She later wrote that the Blackwater River was among the chief and best-loved companions of my youth. Her father had built the bungalow, partly designed by her mother in 1957. Following her mother's death, she converted her mother's bedroom to a study where she wrote her books. It was there that Dervila Murphy entertained a schoolboy looking for material for his Christmas project. How the interview was arranged, I cannot recall. She used to bring her daughter's pony to our forge to be shod, and maybe it was done like that. I don't remember. We had another connection, in that my Aunt Anne had been an assistant librarian under Dervila's father, Fergus Murphy, who, until his death in 1961, served as Waterford County Librarian, based in the Carnegie Library on Gallows Hill in Lismore. My aunt always spoke of him with deep respect. It was only years later when I read her autobiographical Wheels Within Wheels that I realised that we had something else in common arising from our shared library connections. Dervila describes her youthful reading as follows. As the librarian's daughter, I did have one priceless perk. When public library books become too battered and disgusting for rebinding or recirculation, they are withdrawn from circulation stamped to that effect and dispatched either to fever hospitals or to the pulpers. And among those revolting heaps of withdrawn books, I was free to wander and take my pick and carry the noisome volumes by the armful to be mine forever. I still smile when I read that passage 
as so many of the books that surrounded my own childhood also bore that fateful sentence, stamped on more than one page, declaring that they had been withdrawn from circulation. These books ranged from cowboy and detective novels to books on crafts and trades and everything in between. It was winter, and Clairvaux was a cold, dark house. The southern ridge of the Blackwater Valley on which it had been built was exposed to all the elements, the more severe of which seemed to have roused themselves on this late November afternoon. I had my interview prepared as a series of questions written on pages torn from a school copybook. I sat in the study, too shy or not brave enough to remove my coat. I remember that Dervila sat on the side of a chair and that she seemed to loom in silhouette above me. Of the questions that I asked and the answers that she gave, I have little recollection except for one. That is because whenever the country she referred to is mentioned today, it is Dervila who comes to mind. What is the most beautiful country that you have ever visited? I asked. Without hesitation, she replied, Afghanistan. More beautiful than Ireland, I said, struggling to spell the name of this country of which I had never heard before. As beautiful as it is more, she said, but it's a different kind of beauty. Following Dervila's recent death, I looked again at the account of her journey through Afghanistan that she gives in her book, Full Tilt. The sense of discovery, of wonder, and of empathy with the people are evident everywhere, as is her ability to put hardship to one side when struck with the beauty of the land. In Buddha-lined Bamiyan, she forgets the night of extreme cold that she has just spent as she describes her morning view of the valley. Dotted with tiny villages and crisscrossed with lines of silver-barked singed trees, whose diminutive rosy buds were glowing softly in the early light. In her autobiography, she credits her experience of cycling on a steep hill near Lismore with giving her the conviction that she would indeed be capable of cycling to India. Elsewhere in her memoir, she records that amidst the fields and woods and rivers and hills around Lismore, I could enjoy myself as nowhere else. Lismore was the nursery for the spirit that inspired her future adventures. Dervila Murphy brought the Blackwater Valley with her to Bamiyan and to all the other places where she travelled. When she returned to Clairvaux with the material for her books, she also brought the wonder of the different beauty of Afghanistan to an inquisitive schoolboy over 50 years ago. On this morning's programme, we heard What Would Dervla Do? by Margaret Ward. Don't You Have One Doing the Leaving? by Rachel Hegarty. Map Making by Ian Sherry. Novel Suggestions by Bernard Farrell. Rite of Spring by John Toll. And A Different Kind of Beauty by Podrick O'Machon. The music this morning was Distant Green Valley by Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble. Wonderful World by Sam Cooke. Carrick Fergus by The Chieftains. Mr Postman by The Marvelettes and an extract from Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, performed by the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Andres Nelsons. Bernard Farrell's play Happy Birthday Dear Alice is currently on tour with Four Rivers Theatre Company, with performances in Wexford next week. See nationaloperahouse.ie for tickets, and it will continue its tour also to New Ross, Ennis, Limerick and Kilkenny.
And if you'd like to hear more about Dervla Murphy, you can listen back to Sunday Maselny's special 90th birthday tribute to her from last November. Search online for Sunday Maselny Dervla Murphy or check out Sunday Maselny on Facebook or Twitter or you'll also find it at rte.ie forward slash culture. Sunday Maselny's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.